Welcome to Happenings of Grace, a podcast dedicated to sharing the ways in which God works in the congregation of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. Good morning, everyone. Like I always try to do, start off with a today in church history. So today is October 15th. And on October 15th, 1647, the larger Westminster Catechism is completed. I'm part of our standards. All right, so let me open us in prayer and we will begin. Lord, uh, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your church. Uh, we thank you that we're able to continually gather each week after week to hear the gospel uh, presented to us. Lord, we pray that we would grow more like you every, every day. And again, we look to examples from church history of uh, things, uh, how we can respond to problems, how we can respond to sin, and how we can actually see beauty and grace and truth in uh, the history of your church. Lord, we ask that we be with all of us uh, this morning as we uh, continue to look in the Middle Ages. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, last week, just brief recap, finished up with um, how the East and the West Church slowly began to divide and then ended up in a split in the schism of 1054. And so we're going to take a little step back to the 7th century and briefly look at the expansion of Islam and how that impacted the church. So Islam rose very, very quickly in the 600s. Um, so started by Muhammad, and he's the prophet of Allah, um, very monotheistic, super monotheistic uh, religion, um, uh, quickly advanced through conquest. Within 21 years, so Muhammad would start the religion, and I'm not going to go into all that stuff, and then eventually he would die and get off the scene, and his caliphs would you know, kind of fight who would be in charge. Um, but after his death... Within 21 years of his death, Islam had ruled a realm as large as what had been the Roman Empire. They spread north along the eastern Mediterranean, capturing Jerusalem only a few years after the death of Muhammad. And then they moved through North Africa. By 707, most of all of northern Africa was in the hands of Islam. So that's about 70, 80 years after the death of Muhammad. By 711, they had crossed into Spain. Um, they reached as far north as the French city of Tours, but were pushed back and stopped at the Battle of Tours in 732. Um, so their expansion was very rapid, and here's a map of the spread. So you can see a huge geographical area that the Muslims had control of. So they were stopped at the Battle of Tours and pushed back south over the Pyre Pyrenees Mountains, but they still would maintain a dominant presence there and even today, throughout uh, the Middle East, parts of Africa. Um, they were finally driven from Spain altogether in 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Um, and so you have this immense uh, expansion, of this religious fervor from Islam quickly expanding, and which would also um, obviously impact the church, and especially the Byzantine Empire itself. Um, eventually, the Turks would take Constantinople in 1453, and uh, it would fall, and that technically could be the end of the Byzantine Empire. And they would continue to threaten as far east as uh, Vienna in, up until 16, 
83. And so we have about a thousand years of uh, Islam expansion uh, struggle that the church and the Byzantine Empire and the Holy Roman Empire would have to deal with. Naturally, talking about the expansion of Islam, you would want to go and talk about the Crusades. This is a very high overview of the Crusades, mostly getting into the thematic reasons for the Crusades, and I'll focus on one of them in particular. Um, but stepping back, before the Crusades began, the Christians had gone to war in support of the states. But um, due to some changes going on in how the church saw itself, the, uh, the church would also begin to see that you could go to war in support of the church. The church, at this, before the Crusades began, they believed that and there was a separation of church and state, that the state was given power by God to protect the nation, promote peace, whereas the church had a more spiritual mission on the earth. Um, but this crusading ideal started to infiltrate Europe and the church itself. And let's look at that. There, one historian says that there was a, an apocalyptic expectation around this time. So you are in the, you're almost to 1100, so about a thousand years from Christ. Um, and there was a sense of perhaps something would happen at this thousand year mark. And this was reinforced, if you step back to the year 700 or so, there was a gentleman named the Venerable Bede and he wrote a work called The Ecclesiastical History. He said that we should establish a calendar that begins with the birth of Christ. And we should call the years thereafter, then the year of our Lord, Anno Domani, that's where we get A.D. from. Um, and so this really changed, began to change how people thought about time. We have a thousand years coming up, perhaps something is going to go on. You also remember the, the Muslims are still advancing over time. Um, and you also had, with this sense of time, that Christians should go and visit the Holy Land and see where Christ walked, visit it for themselves. And so you had started to have pilgrimages to Jerusalem. And then um, there began reports that the pilgrims were being attacked and ransacked by Muslims. And the reports would grow and grow and their pilgrimages became more dangerous uh, to the point where it was very difficult to even get to the Holy Land. So you've got this background in the minds of the church and the Europeans that they should go to the Holy Land. Perhaps something's going to happen in about a thousand, uh, when we hit 1100, because that's a thousand years from Christ, and then the Muslims are uh, attacking pil pilgrims. We need to do something about this. And so they actually wanted to start to protect and win back the 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 Holy Land, win back um, Jerusalem. That was the initial impetus for the Crusades. Eventually, the church would begin teaching that you could gain your salvation if you went on these Crusades. You could get time out of purgatory if you went on these Crusades, because now you're doing the mission of the church. Now you can use the sword for the church. So a, a mindset had shifted in the minds of church people and the Europeans Previously, you didn't use the sword for the church. Now there's a, there's a shift going on in how we thought of, how the church thought about things. Um, the Crusades were a very brutal time, and, and in even in some cases, so there were battle between Christian soldiers and the Muslims, and in some cases, the Christians were even 
uh, more brutal than the Muslims. Um, but that's not to give excuse to the Muslims either. So very brutal time in uh, church history. Here is a map of the first four crusades and their times and where they disembarked from and where they went to. Mostly they're fighting over Jerusalem back and forth. Um, I can't really go into the nuances of all of them, um, but I will talk about uh, two in particular, one very briefly and one a little more um, in depth because it has lasting impacts on the church and relations with uh, Muslims even to this day. Okay, so there were about five major crusades. The third crusade is the one that we know of uh, the most in a sense. It was launched in 11, 1189, right after the fall of Jerusalem. It went on for about three years. It was led by three European monarchs, Frederick Barbarossa, King Philip, and Richard the Lionhearted. That name you probably all know. Um, and they are fighting against Saladin. Saladin, Saladin. And against this background, we get the story of Robin Hood. So Richard the Lionhearted, he goes on his crusades, and John, the evil John, takes over the throne in England. Um, and this is where we get the story of Robin Hood. He has to steal from the rich and give to the poor. So this, is, this story comes to us in the context of the Crusades. Okay, so this crusade, they had failed to capture Jerusalem. This is the third crusade. They had failed, and some returned home in disgrace, but they did not want to abandon this ideal that we have to retake the Holy Land. Okay, so we get to our fifth crusade, the fourth crusade, a few years later, in about uh, 1200, uh, I think the official date for the crusade is 1202, but in about 1200, the Muslims are continuing invading, and they're actually pushing pretty far on, and there's a sense where the, the church, the West, the Europeans are going to lose everything, so we need to react yet again. Now, here, here, here's why this crusade is very important to even today. So let me give you some background. The Eastern Church in Constantinople, the Byzantine Empire, they were being attacked from all sides by the Muslims, and they called on their brothers in the West to come to their aid. So in 1200, a fourth crusade was being mounted, and it would sail from Venice, and with its navy, it would attack um, near the coast of Jerusalem and try to recapture the city. Um, so the Venetians, they were kind of... Um, kind of swindlers. They wanted to make some, some dough out of this and saw an opportunity. By shipping armies, they can make a whole bunch of money. They had also learned that the emperor in Constantinople had some problems with dealing um, with succession to the throne. And so they saw an opportunity. They could align with the emperor, make some cash by shipping some armies too. They can help the emperor out, get on his side, and then they could go and continue their mission to Jerusalem and the Crusades. So they struck a deal. However, the emperor, due to um, turmoil on his end, he was also kind of a, a weak, weak emperor. He did not deliver on the deal. And the Venetians were very, very angry. And so what did they do? They sailed east and sacked Constantinople. And technically, they sacked their own brothers and sisters the Western Church, the Eastern Church. They pillaged the land, raped the women, 
and this was really the final break between the East and West. There has really not been reconciliation since. The lasting impacts, this would severely weaken Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire. Um, eventually, the Turks would come in in 1453 and destroy the city completely, and they would rename it to Istanbul. Um, Muslims, even today, they equate Christianity with the state, because that's how they view their own religion. And therefore, anyone um, subscribing to Christianity is tied up with the state, and that's why they attack. Um, so the Crusades still have a lasting impact today with, with East-West relations, with um, Muslim-Christian relations. Even don't want to have a Christian state anymore. That's how they view um, Christianity. That's how they, they view states, certain secular states, as Christian states. And you get, get into some of that later with the colonization of the British Empire and all that stuff. But... Essentially, the Crusades are still impacting us today through how the Muslims respond to um, what they view as lands that should be theirs. The Crusades themselves, so again, the Byzantine Empire, the Crusades themselves were, I would say, a tragedy because now the church would think it could use the sword to um, establish the church in whatever manner and conflate um, matters of state with matters of church. And again, this was a major shift in thinking at the time. And this, like I said, this has still lasting uh, impacts today. So just uh, anyone have any thoughts on the Crusades? Chip. You mentioned the Venetians sacked Constantinople, but they really brought the Crusader army. And the Crusader army is the one that did the sacking primarily. They brought them, though. Yeah. So they're culpable, too. Yeah. Yeah. So they brought it. They arranged it. But it's, as you say, very ironic that they were, the crusading army couldn't capture Jerusalem, so instead they ended up sacking their sister. Yeah. So we're still on the topic of Islam. Technically, not everything is bad about his, Islam and the history of its rise, because there was a a, a very gold, it was a golden age technically of Islam, um, and they had very much uh, learning going on. Um, in the 10th and 11th centuries, a great wave of intellectual sophistication had swept through the Islamic world. The study of Quran was encouraged for all Muslims, and therefore uh, literary rates were higher, I think, than in Europe. And um, so they began to study and read, and then they also began to deal in, with the sciences, and things like that. Um, the Muslims had schools of learning called madrasas. They were schools with resident students. And these are slight precursors to what we would consider the university. At this higher level of schooling, the students would carry out formal logical disputations, stating thesis, counterthesis, and conducting dialogue of objections and answers. So they would have these schools. Um, also, uh, classical texts from writers like Aristotle were lost to the Latin world, but were preserved in the Muslim world. So a lot of the Greek texts that we have were in the East, in the East and the Muslims had taken over the East, and so the West could not really get access to the East, all the text in the East, all the old Greek text. Would, they would get to access to it later because of the Muslims, which is very interesting. We'll talk about that later. Um, so the, the West could not get access to the Greek text in East, but eventually those texts would technically be preserved by the Muslims because they saw, um, uh, as they were having their golden age of learning, they saw the value of these texts.
Um, third, Islam had a positive view between the material and spiritual world. So um, material things weren't evil like we had seen in previous uh, views of Gnosticism or um, Marcionism. Um, fourth, Muslims, they had the school of learning. And so these schools would incorporate and use some of these texts here and there. And um, so not everything about the rise of Islam was bad. And eventually, we're only in the 10th and 11th centuries, eventually this rise of intellectual learning for, from the Muslim community would impact the church and directly impact the Reformation. But I'll leave it there for now. However, for the first time in about a thousand years, Christianity now had some serious objections to deal with from with outside the church. So a lot of the problems that the church dealt with were always coming from within. Now they had some serious, especially intellectual problems to deal with from outside the church with the rise of Islam and its influence and its expansion and this quote-unquote golden age. Could the Christian faith withstand reasoned intellectual inquiry growing into the Islamic world? So that is a question on some people's minds. And so enter into one of the great theologians of the Middle Ages, Anselm. Born in northern Italy, fellow Italian. <laughs> born around 1033 AD, he was born into a comfortable, very noble family who owned considerable property. At the age of 15, Hansom wanted to enter a monastery, but he could not obtain his father's consent. His father thought it would be a waste of his noble life. Without his father's consent, the head of the monastery refused his ent entry. So Anselm gave up his desire to study theology and lived a carefree life. His mother, however, soon died and his father's harshness became unbearable. At 23, he left home. He crossed the Alps and wandered through France. Um, it was common at this time before universities for there to be wandering scholars. So Anselm considered himself a wandering scholar. He would seek out an older, wiser uh, gentleman or group of people to learn from, learn from them, figured he could learn all he could from them and go find the next group to go and learn from. Um, after wandering around for three years, Anselm made his way to the monastery of Beck in central Normandy in France. He was attracted to Beck by a famous fellow Italian countryman named Lanfranc. Lanfranc was the primary teacher at the Beck monastery. Anselm's friend writes this, Lanfranc's lofty fame had resounded everywhere and had drawn Anselm to the best clerks from, from all parts of the world. So Anselm, therefore, he came to him and recognized how smart he was, and so Anselm will become, eventually become Lanfranc's greatest student. Lanfranc's discipleship of Anselm would be very profound. When he got there, it was Lanfranc who started him on the course of religious and intellectual development, which would make Anselm one of the outstanding figures in the history of, of the Middle Ages. Anselm write the, writes this about his respect for Lanfranc. So great was his influence over me, and so greatly did I trust his judgment, that if he had told me to go into the forest above Beck and never come out, I would have done it without hesitation. Anselm is one of the great theologians of the Middle Ages, and all due to the tutelage of Lanfranc. And so here's a reflection question. Is there someone that you could disciple, like Lanfranc discipled Anselm? Perhaps you're already doing so. That's just a reflection question. But what I would like to hear is stories of someone who has discipled you. I reflect back on uh, 
living in Racine, Wisconsin, and uh, Jay and I are relatively young and married, perhaps, uh, were asked to join a home group in the local church, uh, which we did. And the leaders, a couple, a couple, a couple, and one uh, of that home group, really took us kind of under their wing and kind of helped to sort of develop some thinking in our choir about Christianity and so forth. So I, I just reflect on that whole group and subsequently many other whole groups that we've been in. In some cases, we've been hopefully helpful to other people. I think this is one of the most neglected commands from our Lord these days to men and women, to older men and women, to disciple younger men and women. And it grieves me greatly. I was at college, I uh, was at a really small school at first, so I was able to get to know the pastor. When I transferred schools, he ended up simultaneously moving, just happened to be the case, to a different church, which was close enough that I could attend, so it was nice that I could continue that relationship. But this church was a little further outside of town, so I was the only college student really there, but it was a nice opportunity that we could be and just learn from him. Uh, we have some we're very close friends today, but the relationship started when uh, Susan and I were chairs of the local IV committee in Pensacola, Florida, for the University of West Florida. And I and InterVarsity sent a right out of college uh, young staffer to come up. And his, his wife was about three years younger than him. So, she, so Betsy was like 18 or 19. And they show up in Pensacola, away from home. And he had recently lost his father to die. And so, it sort of ended up in a mentor relationship. Susan and I being the older, stable, 25-year-olds, but relatively speaking. But anyway, that relationship really worked both ways in terms of discipling one another, and we would pray together, um, Joe and I, about his work with InterVarsity, but then it really developed in a close relationship. And they're probably our best friends today. So Rachel, we'll head off to Thanksgiving with that same family again this year. So That's great. It's, it's gone on a life. Yeah. I also like the point you brought out that the older can disciple the younger and vice versa sometimes. Yeah, yeah. that's really good. I try to think of like one person. I think it's always been like in community, right? So like growing up in the church, our church, you know, we kind of started from a church start and kind of grew. And like I just stop and think of all the, all the adults and all the people just who poured into me that I could, I always felt comfortable to go to to talk about you know, either pastor or, you know, we didn't have youth director back in those days, right? So, like, I was a teenager, and you just talked to the grown-ups. And so it was always, like, in community. And then even when Bob and I got married and moved, it was just, there was always, like, just, it was just the church community was, like, I know, but I was trying to think of, like, just one person. It's just always been, like, this beautiful community of believers who were just always encouraging one another and, you know, I think that also is kind of the idea of the home group as well. You know, that it's always just one person. And I even think about our home group has been that way with each other, just living life. Like, just the ugly, the beautiful, the births, the deaths, uh, you know, all the things. It's been, I don't know, just mm -hmm. perspective. Yeah, this I wish it could take many forms. It doesn't have to be one-on-one. -on -one. It can be in groups. Um, for me, I had a mentor. Um, Still talk to him as much as I can, but he really taught me two things. Um, one, how to 
how to actually put people before myself just by watching him, what he did. And then the second thing was, um, as best as I could, intellectual rigor. So I would ask questions and he would, or I'd make statements and he would just cut me off and say, why are you making that statement? What reason do you have to make that statement? Who are you to say that? I'm like, wait, what? So he would really challenge me to really think through problems and also think through the, the other side of an issue that I may not have considered, which led back into the caring for people, um, trying to see from their perspective sometimes, perhaps there's something that I missed and I'm so stuck on my own argument that I fail to see what others are trying to argue. And I don't have that completely worked out. I always still mess up sometimes, but he's been a great mentor for me. His name is Kevin, and he has the most southern accent you would ever hear. When I first heard it, I thought he was putting me on because there's no way someone talks like this. But <laughs> continue on with uh, Anselm. Um, he was not—he was not content to just be a student. At the age of 27, he officially entered the monastery as a monk. He started out the absolute bottom rung with the official title novice. Three years later, Anselm started to climb the ladder when Lanfranc was promoted to a different monastery. Lanfranc's promotion left Anselm as the primary teacher at Beck. Anselm became very interested in training the minds of monks in ways which would foster their spiritual as well as their intellectual development. So you've got Lanfranc training Anselm. Um, an opportunity comes for Anselm to move up, and then he would become a teacher. So you have a teacher teaching a future teacher. Um, after a while, Anselm's students begged him to write down his teachings. He wrote his first two works at the time, the Monologion, only words, and the Proslogion, first words. In 1078, at the age of 45, Anselm was promoted to the head, or what they would call the abbot, of the monastery. By 1085, people were reading his Monologion and Proslogion in France, England, and possibly in Rome. Anselm was gaining a reputation for himself. Much against his desires, Anselm was chosen in 1093 at the age of 60 to succeed Lefranc as the Archbishop of Canterbury. So this was like the head bishop in England, um, which again came, started from Pope Gregory sending missionaries out to England, realizing that they needed to hear the gospel too. So you have, again, you have a continuation here. Something that happened hundreds of years before is now you know, continuing on. And so Anselm is now in this stream of history. In some ways, the church was seen as, as above, being above the state, and so Anselm technically had just become one of the most powerful men in Europe. Here's what he thought about his new position. I am so harassed in the archbishopric that if it were possible to do so without guilt, I would rather die than continue in it. Um, one reason for this um, was something called the investiture controversy, where kings would try to uh, appoint bishops instead of the church doing the appointing. And so Anselm would have battles with the king saying, no, 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 this is not your right. It is our right as a church to appoint people in our church. The king has no right to do this. So there was battle back and forth with that. Anselm would be, or is it? He would be uh, sent into exile. He stayed away from England um, until after 1100 AD. And I think it's, it was William, yeah, William of, from 1066, William Normandy, well, I would send, send him into exile. Um, a new king led to some new disagreements when Anselm came back, and Anselm was exiled again. He returned to England in 1106 at the age of 73. 
His biographer wrote, Anselm was received with great joy and honor by the church, and the king was heartily glad that he had made his peace with Anselm. Anselm died at the age of 76. So let me get into why he's important. Anselm would, begin the, would be the beginning of a new school of thought called scholasticism. Scholasticism, a school of medieval Christian thought that was called upon to make a defense for Christianity. Scholastics thought to systemize Christian thought. Um, they also started to develop new like technical language so the theologians could talk to each other easier and coalesce all their thoughts. Um, it gets a bad rap today because it, it would become very dry and a, really a, kind of apart from the daily needs of people. But its intent at this time was to systemize thought. Okay? Um, it would also provide a defense of Christianity, starting from the area of natural philosophy and, re and reason. Out of the scholastics, we get universities. So Oxford, um, other universities in Europe, were arise out of scholasticism, and um, then we get uh, the universities that we have today really started from there. So you could say Christianity started universities in a sense. Anselm, some of his thought, he came up with the ontological argument, the being greater than which none can be conceived, or put another way, the greatest conceivable being. <sighs> okay. This gets a little tough, and there are some problems with the argument. Dan, don't refute me right now. <laughs> but I just wanted to show what, what, what he did, what the ontological argument was and is. Um, so you can imagine a being greater than which none can be conceived. So Tom Brady, considered one of the greatest quarterbacks, right? Is he God? No. Why? Because Anselm says he can, you can imagine an older being, a stronger being, a more ethical being. I, you can even imagine a better quarterback, right? Tom Brady is not God because, because you can think of a greater being. And so it was nonsensical and unreasonable to speak of a God who does not exist because you can imagine that there is a greater being than what we have in front of us. Now, there are some problems with that, but the point is that he came up with this, this view that God is the greatest being that there is. There's nothing higher than you can imagine. Okay? I'm not going to get into the problems with the argument, but that's what he's trying to do. And he's trying to do it not from the scriptures or revelation, but through natural reason. That's a key point. Trying to do it through reason alone. Okay? Anselm would um, attempt to harmonize faith and reason um, he saw no um, discord between the two, as we kind of see today in our culture. Faith and reason, they're not enemies, but they can exist together. And his motto was faith-seeking understanding. What he meant by that is that um, we have faith first, and because I have faith, therefore I want to understand more. Where on the flip side, some would say, I will understand first, and then I'll believe. Do you see the difference? So for Anselm, faith was the foundation. I already believe, and because of this, I want to understand more. So his motto, faith-seeking understanding. That's been a personal motto for me, that this is what the, for me, this is what the Scripture says. I believe it, 
Now, Lord, help me to understand it greater. So that's Anselm's model, faith, seeking, understanding. That was also a foundation for modern scientific thought. Right, that's true. So what do you guys think about his motto? Good. Right. It's the only way it works. And I think that, you know, I mean, a lot of times people think if their apologetics are good enough that everybody would believe, but that's not the way it works. It works the opposite. If people have faith, they'll seek that, and, you know, then apologetics is very helpful. Mm -hmm. In many ways, apologetics gave me permission to believe in that. I wanted, I saw the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Christ, and I really wanted it to be true. But it was only when I saw godly, wise people talking about how the Bible and science don't contradict. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I was able to say, yes, this is a reasonable thing to believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they, they worked hand in hand, right. but faith was first. But then there's the flip side of like Lee Strobel's story where he had no faith. And he sought understanding, or he sought to disprove, and came to faith. So that's the beauty of God. <laughs> the spooky <laughs> mm -hmm. You have Paul making arguments to the great philosophers of his age that are very much a reasoned approach that seems to subvert the order to some extent. Not for him, but potentially for them. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important if you're in a sort of apologetic conversation with someone to be praying that God would raise them from spiritual death to light. Mm -hmm. Because that really has to come first before you're going to get anywhere. And, you know, when I was first a Christian, I thought if I just had the magical argument, the phrase that pays, I get everyone to believe. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Being so young in the faith. Mm -hmm. but. You know, God really has to do the work first. And so apologetics definitely has its place and is exciting. But I think, you know, you want to really be praying that very intentionally. Mm -hmm. So, Anselm, we've got the ontological argument. We have him trying to harmonize faith and reason. His other contribution to Christian thought, Christian history, was his view of the atonement. So, what did Jesus do for us on the cross? What? Died for our sins. In what sense? Paid the penalty, right? So, Anselm doesn't go that far yet. But what he does, I'll share in a minute, um, penal substitutionary view of the atonement would be built upon Anselm's thought. So keep that in mind. Um, so at this time during the atonement, a prominent view of the atonement was called the ransom theory. Uh, essentially that um, Christ was, his death was kind of a trick, kind of a fish hook to lure the devil into accepting and grabbing on the Christ, and then therefore he would be defeated by Christ's death. Okay, that was kind of the prevailing view. Anselm has some serious problems with this view, uh, as we obviously do ourselves. He viewed this theory as an insult to God. Anselm did not believe the devil had any rights over man, and God did not have to be under any obligation to respect these rights. So Satan was in control and dominion over man, and then Christ came in to rescue um, man by tricking the devil, 
becoming the fishhook, that's what they say, and then Satan was therefore defeated. Anselm says, if God is the being greater than which none can be conceived, so you can start to see how his thought is being systematized here. God does not have to trick the devil because God is not beholden to Satan. Tricking the devil would also be a form of deception. God cannot deceive because he cannot lie. Um, this view was improper to God's deity and tended to place God and Satan too much on the same plane. Too much, he'd have like equal power in a sense. So Anselm rejected this view. So what did Anselm say? In his greatest work, Cur Deus Homo, the God-Man. This work explores the question of why God became man and offers an answer that would be eventually become standard in Western theology. So Anselm said, The importance of a crime is measured in terms of the one against who it is committed. So if I were to kick Elijah... He might kick me back, and that's probably all that happened, or we're not friends anymore. <laughs> if I go and kick the president, what do you think would happen? <laughs> right? Why? The president and Elijah are both human beings, but why is the punishment greater than, you see the point there? And so Anselm was saying that because God is the greatest being, there would be no greater being higher than him, the crime against him is infinite, okay? Um, and humans have committed this crime of sin against God. Um, and therefore, humans are the only ones that offer satisfaction for the sin that they committed. You guys follow? Okay. But humans are finite and cannot pay an infinite, uh, cannot pay for an infinite crime. And therefore, you need a divine human, God incarnate, through his suffering and death, offers satisfaction for the sins of humankind. Because God is infinite, is the only one that can pay the price, that can, well, he wouldn't put it in the price, but pay the satisfaction due to God, because God is infinite, and it was an, an infinite snub. But humans are the ones that's, that committed the snub, and therefore they actually have to pay, they actually have to give satisfaction. And therefore, you Anselm says you need a divine human person to satisfy the demands of God. You guys follow that? All right, good. This has been called the satisfaction theory of the atonement. It is not penal substitution that Jesus is satisfying, um, satisfying God, satisfying his justice, satisfying his honor. It's not actually talking about a penalty being paid for, not yet, but penal substitution would eventually come out of this view. And in some sense, this is, there is truth to this. It's not the full or view that we understand today, but um, God is, be, is satisfied by Jesus' payment, right? So Anselm is saying, um, God must be satisfied, and the only way to do that is through a divine human person. So this sets the foundation of how we understand the atonement today, and Anselm shows us how much God loved us and that he came to earth to make satisfaction for our crimes against God. This was also written, Cardeus Omo, which we get this view of the atonement, was also written as a reaction against the Muslims. So I'm continuing that Muslim theme where they're, they're expanding, they have a golden age, they're actually now bringing serious challenges to the Christian faith, and so Anselm writes Cardeus Omo as a, as a reaction against that to defend Christianity. 
Um, Muslims would say that God is so different from his created world, he cannot come down and enter into it. That is blasphemy. That is nonsense. How could a holy God come in and dirty himself up? How could God become a cockroach, in a sense? That's impossible. That is demeaning to God. And Anselm says, well, that's kind of the point. That we are cockroaches in, in one sense because we are wicked and evil, and God yet still comes down into our world, dirties himself up to save his people. And so he's writing Cordeus Oma as a reaction against the Muslim view that God cannot do this. And so the final point there, God did what was necessary to pay for our sins, even if it meant humiliation. So the Muslims cannot comprehend a God humiliating himself. And Anselm says that's exactly what Jesus did. He humiliated himself to save his people. While Anselm would be the beginning of what would be termed scholasticism, if you ever read Cordeus Oman, it's actually a pretty simple read. I think it's, if I remember, it's in Socratic dialogue, question and answer format. Um, I think the guy he's talking to is Bozo, <laughs> if I remember correctly. Um, and so it's a, it's a really simple read, and if you get a chance to read it, I would recommend it. Um, but his, you can see where his um, strong intellectual thought actually has very pastoral concerns. That it's not just ivory tower theology, he's not just um, doing stuff to show his great mind, although he did have a great mind. He did it because there was an attack on Christianity that could affect the people that he was ministering to because he was Archbishop of Canterbury. He was over people. And so he used his, his strong intellect to defend the faith for the purpose of edifying the people and to strengthen them and to show them what Christ has done and what, what he has done for his people and for his church. So I really like Anselm, not just because he's Italian, but because he combines faith and reason for everyday people. I re so I really, I really like Anselm. Okay, any questions? All right, well, I said last week I'd wrap up the Middle Ages this week, but that's not happening. So next week we'll wrap up the Middle Ages and we'll get into the pre-reformers. And then after that, we'll start down the road to the Reformation and try to end this. My goal is to try to end this before we go to one service after Thanksgiving. We will see how I do if I achieve my goal. So, what historical endpoint? Probably a couple years ago. We we'll see. We'll see. All right, Jack, could you pray for us, please? Dear Lord, we thank you that. Jesus, you've been at work throughout the ages, and um, Lord, we're thankful that we can take this look back and see how you've worked in your church and in your people, and indeed, that your kingdom would come on earth. So Lord, we thank you. We not only study it, but we're part of it. In Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you.